0: We return to Judges chapter 6 tonight, and this will be the fifth in the series of lessons on the subject of the call of Gideon. The call to Gideon, and we're going to read verses 24 through 34 for the content of the message this evening. We'll be looking at the subject, or the title of the message, God's Two Requirements of Gideon. The two requirements which God laid upon Gideon's life. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Oprah, in the Abiezrites. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock, in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him, and so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. They said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And When they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove. That was by it. Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together that went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abba Ezer was gathered after him. For Bible information and for remembrance and quiz, Gideon was given another name, to remember it, Jeroboam, because he threw down the altar of Baal. The word Jeroboam means let God, or let Baal, rather, plead for himself. Now we come to this portion of God's call to Gideon. We've seen that God called Gideon, and Gideon had many reservations about it. He gave several excuses that he wasn't qualified. He didn't come from a good enough family. And God would not receive that, and it offended God. And he reminded Gideon that it was God who had made the creature's mouth and not the creature himself. God is the one who forms us and gives us our physical makeup, and he also gives us our spiritual understanding. Everything which we have, we have from God. Then if that be the case, then we should not look over at our neighbor and compare our what we feel is inadequate in the light of what our neighbor has because god is sovereign he has a right to bestow all of this and that would eliminate so much jealousy not only in the world but within the church of the lord jesus christ if we would just relax and enjoy the blessings that god has given to us personally and not compare what we have with what our fellow brother or sister in christ has and It, I think, sometimes offends our Heavenly Father that if we sometimes complain, well, we don't have the gifts or we don't have the knowledge or we don't have this that you've given to somebody else in the member of of your body. But it is God which gives us what we have, and we must rest in that and be thankful for it. Gideon will remember him just as we'll remember David. In the negative part of David's life and his affair with Bathsheba, we will remember Gideon forever requesting signs from God. Signs. And then, the Lord willing, in next week's uh, message, the next in the series, we'll look at the putting out of the fleece and see if that is a recommended thing in the life of a believer or not. But tonight, our Lord required two things out of Gideon that he's going to call him to represent him. There's two things that a representative of God is expected by God to do. The first thing is to put away the false idols and destroy the altar of Baal and set up a true altar, that is, a recognition of the true God in the life. So there must be an overthrowing of idols, the altar of Baal, and secondly, Gideon was required to establish the altar of the Lord, the altar being the place of sacrifice, the central feature of the Old Covenant worship system. Now, if you've got the essence of the story, we found that Gideon here had a family problem, even though that uh, his father was associated with his own race of Israel, Israel had already run after strange gods in the form of Baal. Now, Baalism was a complex system of worship. It had many different gods, many different modes of worship. But the interesting thing about Baal worship is that it claimed the name of Jehovah. That is, it said, we worship Jehovah God, but then it used all forms of methods to worship Jehovah, which was not authorized by Jehovah. And thus it became known as Baalism, or Baal worship. It's a very interesting study in and of itself, because if we could see it sometime, maybe, and we look in that subject, we see how it has been duplicated today in religion. In religion, Christianity... Claiming the name of Jehovah, claiming the name of Jesus Christ, and yet using all forms of degrading and unauthorized methods to worship this Jehovah God. And this is another form of Baalism. God had it to contend with in his old covenant people. He has it to contend with in his new covenant people. And so Gideon's own father was a worshiper of Baal. and So there was a family struggle right off here, and God told Gideon to go and destroy the altar of Baal. And in that altar, it usually was set on a high ridge or something, and there would be a grove of trees surrounding that altar. All forms of sexual impurities or forms of of, uh, degrading acts were performed in a religious worship. Uh, of reproduction unto the true God of Israel. And these were debauched type of services. Perhaps you have read of some that are even carried out in the name of Satanism in contemporary uh, lifestyles. And so Gideon was commanded, you go and you cut down the groves and you build out of the wood of those trees a true altar unto God, and you offer a burnt sacrifice, uh, a bullock upon that altar, and I will be with you. And the Lord did such. In verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abba Ezer was gathered after him. Now, what can we learn from this analogy or from this historical event in the life of Gideon? First, if we are going to serve and represent the Lord our God, we also are expected to throw down and destroy the false idols that may be in our lives. The writer in the New Testament says, My little children, flee from idols. That means it is possible for a Christian to have idols in the life. What is an idol? It is anything which depicts God in a limited or a prescribed fashion. It is directing the glory that should be given to the unlimited, infinite nature of God, and it is directing that honor toward a view of God which has limitations. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And then it lists a whole bunch of forms of idols. Gods that have hands but can't feel and eyes that can't see. That's what idolatry is. It's forming in our minds a concept that God must be something like myself. I have limitations. God must have limitations. Hence, I read an article several years ago by a Jewish uh, theologian that he said, the one statement that stuck out of my mind was, he says, God has as many problems as we have. God has just as many problems as we have. He's trying his best to work them out. Now, that's an idol. That's an idolatrous view of God. This man professed to represent one God, just like those in the days of Baal did but they represented God in a concept of a degrading form of limitations placed upon him. That he has problems and with wisdom and power, just like creatures do. So if we're going to serve God, we must throw down all of these false concepts of God that be in our lives. And we must make ourselves, through God's grace, clean if we are to represent him. God will not have His representatives filled with uncleanness and idolatry in their lifestyle. And we have lived in our time frame to see the culmination of about 20 years of men who have purposed or have professed to have represented the true character of God and see this whole thing begin to crumble through the cause of immoral, And self-centered lifestyles. I'm talking about men in the pulpits. This thing has just not been on TV and the televangelists. It's happened through local churches in every city and hamlet throughout this land. And we've had far too long representatives of God claiming to represent God who are living unclean lives and lives which are filled with adultery and idolatry. God would have Gideon to depart from that if he was going to represent him so as to lead him to this military victory that he was going to bring about in his life. Those that would bear the vessels of God must have clean hands to carry those vessels. If you would go over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. Verse eleven. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the what? The vessels of the Lord. That's quoted in the New Testament, the Book of Second Corinthians. To be clean, touch not the unclean thing. Now, this is given in the sense of the old covenant in the ceremonial aspect, but it's merely saying that if someone was going to be called to represent God like a priest or some office, they were expected by God to be clean. They were to have clean hands and to go through all of the cleansing processes. And how much more in our age that if we have been called by God to represent him as his people that we live clean lives, have clean hands, and not professing to represent him in a way while at the same time having our lives cluttered up with sinful practices and sinful thoughts. Those that would be called to the service of God are expected by God to overthrow the false gods and the idols of uncleanness in their life. A cleanness of heart must be exercised in the life of a Christian in order for sinners to be converted under our influence. That is, God, in the conversion of sinners, uses people's lives who are clean themselves. Now go to Psalm chapter 51 and see how David so vividly expresses this. This is his psalm of repentance after his affair with the Sheba. And he starts out in verse fifty one in verse one I'm sorry, chapter fifty one, verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to thy tender according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And then he lists several other statements I'd like for you to drop down in verse ten now. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. That means free grace, unconditional mercy. Then, watch it, will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted. Unto thee. Isn't he interested? David did more than just play the political role of the king in Israel. He was interested in seeing people saved, interested in seeing sinners converted from their ways. And he acknowledged that because he himself had fallen into sin, that this had affected his public testimony and his witness for his heavenly Father. And so he asked for forgiveness. And he said, "Oh God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And then I will teach transgressors their ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And so if there we go through periods in which that we find barrenness in our life as individuals and as a church, and as under the ministries of the men of older years and days past, if a church went through a season of time in which that they did not experience conversions, they began to get on their faces before God and ask if there was anything unclean in their midst that might be withholding God's blessings upon them. And I think that's very appropriate that if we go through periods of time in which that there's no moving of God, no bringing forth of spiritual children, then we ought to ask ourselves could there be any unclean thing in our lives that we have not yet put aside? that God might be saying, I'm not going to bless until you deal with this matter right here. And this affected David. He said, Oh God, forgive me. Wash me and cleanse me. And when this takes place, then I'll teach transgressors by ways. It's a difficult thing, at least I find it is, to try to tell somebody else what they're doing wrong if you're doing it yourself. Now, I don't know how individuals are able to do it. they Some are able to do so, obviously, and have done so. But it's a burden and a guilt to me that if I have a thought or something, a practice in my life that I'm having to deal with, it's difficult to get up and preach on that, isn't it? Those of you, Brother David, Bill, and others that that have to preach. It's a difficult thing to preach on a subject if you have a problem in that given area. And so David then acknowledged that. He said, Lord, I've had this problem. I've done wrong. Now then, forgive me and cleanse me and make a right spirit within me so I can have this guilt removed and then I'll get about my task of teaching transgressors their ways and sinners be converted unto you. So, the cleansing of the hands, the cleansing of the heart and the motives, the altar of Baal must be overthrown. Now, the second thing the Lord required out of Gideon was that he was to set up the altar of the Lord. To set it up. This offering that was to be offered upon this altar was a burnt offering. The burnt offering consumed the whole of the sacrifice. Some offerings, while the sacrifice, after it had been slain, it would be cut up and distributed as food to the priest and the various other needs. But the burnt offering was to be given as a total dedication unto the Lord. It was to be placed upon the fire, and the fire would consume the totality of the flesh, of the animal, and all of its intros. So in this aspect, the fire in the Bible has represented several different things, but it comes to us as a representative in some cases in the Bible of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He shall be baptized with fire, a purging effect. And so I draw from this that if the fire here is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, then it sets forth the believer's life as it's manifested in the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing about a complete surrender and submission totally unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a desire to know the will of God and a desire to want to do that. Now, that involves crucifixion. It involves self-denial. If you're going to serve God, you must deny self, for no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve yourself and serve Christ at the same time, for Jesus said you'll hate the one, love the other, or opposite. Now, let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This thing of setting up the altar of God involves a sacrifice, and a sacrifice of self, a sacrifice of your ambitions, sacrifice of your goals. Matthew chapter 16 and uh, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. We almost are living in a time in which that we have to redefine what the meaning of the cross is. Now, we, in this context that I'm speaking to tonight, understand the cross as the means of a sub- representing the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. But what was the original meaning of the cross before Christ was crucified? It meant self-denial. It meant the ending of a life, the giving of one's life away, having your life taken away from you. Now, what is our life? It's not just the physical body that we're living in. But a man lives with hopes and dreams and ambitions. And man comes into this world with a view of self-centeredness. It's called original sin, in which that he wants everything that comes to pass in his life to be lined up in a way that will please and satisfy his own plans and purposes. And beloved, if you're going to be a Christian, and serve God. God's going to require some crucifixion of your life's plans and ambitions. And he'll get the job done. One of the first major crucifixions of my life ambition was after becoming a Christian and after the death of my father was have to switch from uh, a, an ambition to play professional major league baseball and go into some other field of service. And that was difficult. It was a difficult time. I still, when I go to the ball games ever so often, I can still sit up in those stands and wonder what would it have been like to have been out there playing on the baseball field. Now, my wife can't understand that. Others can't understand that. But unless you've had it in your blood, you don't know what you're talking about. But if this thing was in my blood, it was my desire. And yet, God crucified that. His providence just swept through like a mighty wind and took my life's ambitions and plans all the without me being able to say hardly anything about it. But I stand here tonight, Brother Jim, and say I'm not ashamed of what God did. I'm glad He did what He did because He's given me something far greater. Here I am, 47 now. I'd have been retired 12 years ago. And... Uh, Cooking hamburgers for McDonald, the way most major league baseball players that don't take care of their money—that's what a lot of them ha- happens to them. Get up there and make the big money and misuse it, and then their career is over in six or seven years. And then what do they got to do? I'm glad that God saw fit to give me something better. But I say at the time I didn't know that's the best. You know when God puts a cross in your life why the first reaction is to say, Lord, is this necessary? Is this really necessary? And then we come to see the words of our Lord. No, if you're going to try to save your own life, live it for self, you're going to lose it. That is, you're going to become disillusioned. But if you really want to find the meaning of life then give your life away, give it away unto God, give it away unto others, and you'll find and discover the meaning of life and happiness. The song that says, I've discovered the way of gladness. I've discovered the way of joy. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ, building an altar, and the altar represents self-sacrifice. I hope that you have learned and studied enough under our ministry then to see the great line of distinction between what we present here in this church and the gospel that's presented by the Norman Vincent Peels and the uh, uh, my mind slips me the fellow in the glass house Robert Shuler and uh, and these individuals because they say that the way to happiness is by achieving great gain that is of getting things and how to make things set up in certain ways that you can have things work out for your own advantage. That's the very contrast to what our Lord is saying here, that you find life not by having things flowing to you, but by giving your, way, your life away for the honor of God. As I was reading this past week while I was bedridden after my surgery, I was reading some of the testimonies of the martyrs. And how that those people were willing to give their physical life away rather than renounce their master. And I just lay there thinking, my, we're in a culture that doesn't even know what the spirit of martyrdom is. And I'm talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you're not willing to give, say, of what God asks you financially, you think you'd be willing to go to the cross or go to the flames... If you're not willing to serve the Lord by attending the public services when they're available, do you think that if God called on you to die on some faggot as it's lit, that you'd be willing to say, I'll give my life? No, I doubt it very, very much. I'm afraid we've lost the spirit of the martyrs. Revelation, the book says they loved their lives not unto what? Unto death. They were willing to even die. We're living with a whole generation of church people in which they're not even willing to deny the least little thing. They've got to have their double car garage, a boat, and a motor, and everything. And if, and if something happens, take any bit of that away. Why, they think, oh God, why me? Why would you let this happen to me? <laughs> well, how, how soft we have become in comparison with what men and women. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Why don't we do that? I don't have that in my notes, but maybe uh, we'll just uh, insert it right here. Let's read what is characterized, the people of God, down through the years. Hebrews chapter 11. Start about verse 33 after it lists the Christian Hall of Fame as I have uh, entitled it here. We have a baseball, and a football hall of fame, and all kinds of hall of fame. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great faith chapter, the hall of fame, the ones who got their names recorded here. Incidentally, look back up in 32, and you'll see who's the first name listed there. Gideon, our subject of our series. Verse 33, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed, valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a A better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover or bonds and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, that's quite a testimony. That doesn't sound like the health and wealth gospel to me. That sounds like that if you embrace the gospel of the true God of heaven and earth, you better be ready to have your life's designs and ambitions that you had laid out for self crucified and put to death. Because that's what God's going to do. That's what this whole thing of being conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ is about is that God takes an old self-centered, self-seeking sinner and begins to chip off the pieces and makes them an ideal servant like unto his Son. And that's what's going to happen. That's what God requires out of his people if they're going to represent him. And that's what God does in his people by his grace. Now, we must surrender our will unto the will of God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. It's what our Lord did himself. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. This is our Master, the one who didn't have any sin. This is him praying, not his will of humanity, but the Lord's will. It's sort of amusing when I come across people, relatives and friends, who say, Oh, God would never want anybody sick. God never want anybody poor. God just doesn't want that. Well, I wonder, then I must be missing the whole thing. I must be missing the God. Then, Because in my life I have found many occasions in which God has crossed my plans and has said, no, you're not going to have this. I have something else for you. And this is what he did right here. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who never committed one act of sin, said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's self-denial. That's crucifixion. That's putting our plans and ambitions in subordination and subjection to the lordship of our God in heaven. Now, Paul submitted his will unto the Lord. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts, the ninth chapter. Here's his testimony, his conversion experience, rather. In verse 6, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, you know, if you sit under the ministry of grace for any length of time, that salvation is of the Lord. Do we say amen to that? It's God which must save. God alone can save. Man can't save. And yet the same God who's made that known requires something out of men. Now that's the same God. Now you say, well, that's a contradiction. No, the problem's not in the book, as I brought out this morning. It's in us, if we think it's a contradiction. The God who says, without me you can do nothing, says, repent and believe the gospel. He says, clean up your life. He says, make yourself a new heart. And yet in other passages, he said, you can't do that. Only I can do that. Well, if I'm ever brought to a point where God says, you either do this or you die, and then I'm brought to see that I can't do it, but God alone can do it, that might just get me on speaking terms with God to go to him and ask him to do it for me. And that's what he's designed to do, to shut us up, to give us requirements of what it is that pleasing unto Him. We see how we sin and come short of meeting those requirements and we go to our God in prayer. Paul said, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said, you go into such a place and there I'm going to tell you what you must do. Am I speaking to anyone here tonight and you're sort of wondering about in your Christian experience right now, wondering what God may have in store for you? Maybe there's the matter of marriage. Maybe there's the matter of a change of job. Maybe there's some other matter of relocation from one city unto another. Do you ever wonder what God has in store for you? I think all of us should from time to time. All of us wonder what a day is going to bring forth, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some specific calling wherein that we would like to be fixed, where we can serve our God, what he would have us to do. That isn't always given us that understanding just like that. Paul says, what will you have me to do? Did you catch that? The Lord said, you go over here to such and such a place, and there we told you what to do. God makes his mind known when it's his time to do so. You just continue to follow his revealed will. And he'll give you more light to show you what lies ahead. My wife and I, when uh, we were married several years ago, and I've reached that point where I no longer refer to how how long I've been married, just say several years ago now. (laughs) As we were leaving our honeymoon cottage, we had to drive across the dam of of a lake there. We were on our way leaving Missouri and on our way to California. And I turned to her and I said, Well, I wonder what's in store for us. Look back 26 years ago. I will let that known now. We've seen a lot of water go under the bridge. I wonder if she really knew What those 26 years were going to consist of if she'd have stayed with me in that automobile and gone on to California. Because we've we've driven a lot of miles uh, together. We don't know yet. Several times we've gone back to that spot. It's underwater now with a large lake that was put in there and flooded the river and lake where you no longer get to it. But before that occurred, we went back there two or three times in the years after our honeymoon. And we'd be able to reflect upon that statement, I ask. Wonder what God has in store for us. And we'd be able to put all the pieces together. We'd see the trials and the victories all mixed in together. Isn't it marvelous to be able to sing, Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Lord, what will you have me to do? And if He doesn't make it clearly spelled out in the heavens, just continue to follow His revealed will in the book. Read the book. Stay in the book. Pray. Set yourself under the teaching ministry of the Word of God. And in due time, He will make known unto you what He would have you to do. And then other times you will be able to sit back on the bank and say, wait a minute, I see what His will has been all along. I've been doing it. I just didn't know it. Just didn't know it. Paul gave his will unto the Lord. Now, this thing of crucifixion, self-denial, self-sacrifice, it involves simply the Lordship of Christ and our giving of ourselves unto the Lord. This is what the Corinthians did. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Here we're going to touch on the matter of money. Glad to be able to say, by the grace of God, whenever I read this portion, I don't have to have any reservations. This is not one of those areas in my life in which I have any reservations about my giving unto the Lord. I'm just grateful I'm able to give what I'm able to give. I don't resent it. Whatever we give to the Lord's work, we don't ever wish. Well, we wish we had that back, because if we had it back, what we could do. Now, why? 2 Corinthians 8.1, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He said, I want you to look at the testimony over there in Macedonia, how those people were blessed by God's grace. How that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality... Now, this wasn't, again, the health and wealth people. These were people who were poorer, and yet they rejoiced in their ability to give. Paul says, now, I want you people here at Corinth to look at that group over there. They don't have much, but I want you to see how generous they are in their giving, because in evidence God has blessed them. For through their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, that is, ability." They gave beyond really their ability to give, praying with us, us with much entreaty, that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, that is, the poor saints in Jerusalem. And this they did, not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the what? To the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same work, all, the same grace also. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, by or, but by occasion of the forwardness of others. Is, I'm not speaking now, commanding you in this matter of giving, but I want to give you an illustration of grace in this church over in Macedonia and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for his your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And you go on and you find in chapter 9 that the whole thing is dealing dealing with the ministering unto the saints. Down in verse 6 of chapter 9, This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a what? A cheerful or the Greek word, a hilarious giver. Someone who just sort of not in their right mind, as the world would say. Just gives and gives and gives. Now notice back though in chapter 8 and verse 5. Where does this grace start at when you see a person who just delights in supporting the work of God? It starts... Not with self, but it starts with a right understanding of God and a giving of themselves totally to God. And beloved, when that takes place, God's got your pocketbook. You try to preach tithing and giving to people who are not committed unto the Lord. And I tell you, they'll sit there and they'll hold their purses and their pocketbooks and say, don't you deal in that area, preacher. But isn't it interesting How seldom you do have to bring up the subject of giving when you're ministering unto people who have given themselves unto the Lord. That's just a way of life. So that every Lord's day upon the first day of the week when we assemble, we bring a portion of that which God has blessed us with, and we give it unto Him. Not by commandment. That is not because we have to and do it with a gritted teeth. For God loves a cheerful giver. And these people who did not have much to give over here in Macedonia gave because they first had given themselves unto the Lord. And if God has you there, he'll have you elsewhere in all the different areas of the life. Establish the altar. In conclusion... False gods must be overthrown before the true God can be served. That's a requirement which God has to those who are called into his service. And whole surrender to God is to take place before whole service to God can be rendered unto him. I hope that this evening we see in this lesson the simplicity of the Christian faith. God has some simple requirements. In that they're easy to understand, but they're most difficult to fulfill when it comes to the matter of the flesh. Gideon did as the Lord asked him, and the Bible concludes in our concluding verse, that the Spirit of God came upon Gideon. That is God's approval. And Gideon blew the trumpet and rallied the army together. And we'll take up there in our next session as to what God brought to pass.